0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, last week, if you were here, uh, I shared three words for 2020. Now, not up, in, and out, uh, although I did mention those three, and they are connected to the three new words that I shared a week ago from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. But can anybody remember one or all three of the, the words that I, I shared last week? Gravitate was one of them. Motivate and communicate. Brilliant. Gravitate closer to God in 2020. Motivate each other in 2020. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. And communicate Jesus in 2020. Hold on swervingly to the faith that you profess. So Gravitate motivate and communicate I do want to come back to those resolutions because I reckon in fact I believe they're going to be pretty important in 2020 but I just wanted to repeat them at the start of this morning to kind of keep them alive and also for those who weren't here last week just to put them out there but in terms of this morning although this is the start of a, a new year we're going to come to the end of an era we come to the end of an era as we return to the Game of Thrones series, it's been six weeks since our last look at Second Kings. Uh, but with this morning, we are going to say a final farewell to one of the greatest ever prophets of God. Elisha dies. It's a milestone moment in the story. But even in death as it was in life, Elisha's influence and impact is extraordinary. If not, a little weird. In fact, really weird. Now, there are nine recorded resurrections in Scripture. There are six in the New Testament, three in the Old. And in Second Kings 13... We come across one of them: whenever an unknown, unnamed individual comes back to life, whenever his dead body comes into contact with the dead bones of Alicia. Now, that kind of raises all sorts of questions. But for some of you, the biggest question, the most pressing question is, who are the other eight? Okay, so for some of you already are on your phones looking up the answer to the other eight. So we've a congregational participation. Who can identify any of the other eight recorded resurrections in Scripture apart from this unknown, unnamed individual in 2 Kings 13? Now, let's get the, the one that's always the right answer out of the way. No, Jesus, not Lazarus. Jesus. Okay. So that's, that's seven. So seven more, or that's, that's the eighth one. Seven more. Enoch seventh, from Adam. Enoch seventh from Adam. Did, did Enoch resurrect or, no, I'm not. Okay. I'll give, I'll give you that Gerald. In fact, I'm not going to give you that Gerald. No, I will give you that Gerald. Okay. What was, Lazarus was the other one, right? Give me someone else. Son of the widow of Nain. Sorry, which one of you, Dorothea? Elijah raised the son of the widow took care of him. Very good. This, the, the widow of Zarephath, wasn't that? Somebody, somebody said Tabitha. Yeah. Who also called Dorcas. Then there was who? Whose daughter? Jairus' daughter. And then there was the son of a Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, and then in Acts 20, there was Eutychus. You know the guy who fell asleep and fell out of the window during a really dull sermon, and I know what some of you are thinking, okay? <laughs> just, just don't go there, okay? So, nine recorded resurrections, although that's... There, there they are, by the way. There's the eight of them plus the one in 2 Kings 13. That's not entirely accurate, because do you, if you were here during December... Do you remember what Jesus said to John the Baptist disciples whenever they came asking him, Jesus, are you the one? What was it that Jesus said to the disciples? He said, go back to John and report to him what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who are of leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and then what does it say? The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the person. so that kind of implies that there were many individuals whose names are not recorded in scripture who were raised from the dead plus and some of you are thinking about this in Matthew 27 whenever Jesus dies we read this at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook the rock split the tombs broke open broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. So it seems like there were numerous resurrections referred to in Scripture. Anyway, that's the kind of distraction over. But what I want you to do is hold on to this whole idea, this whole possibility that there is life after death. There is life beyond the grave. There is resurrection. But back to 2 Kings 13, where alongside the details of Elisha's death, we also read the stories of two more kings. We, we've been journeying through these books now for months, and, and we're going to continue. And I know I had thought of stopping, but a number of you have said, no, look, let's, let's keep going. So we are going to keep going for another few weeks anyway. But we read about two more kings in Second uh, Kings 13. Jehoahaz, and Jehoash, now all these names sound so familiar, don't they? And I can't pronounce them right anyway, so that doesn't help. But Jehoahaz is dad, Jehoash is his son, and their stories are in this chapter. So please, if you can, let's stand for the public reading of God's life-giving word. I don't have the words on screen this morning, so if you can see it in a copy of God's word in front of you, that would be great. But there's no words that are going to come onto the screen. So 2 Kings 13 verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, who's a different person, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel, and he reigned for 17 years. Now, just pause there for a moment. Do you remember Jehu? Jehu? He was the king who drove his chariot like a what? like a madman, like a maniac, okay? But he was also the king who sorted out and dealt with Ahab and Jezebel. And because he did that way back in Second Kings chapter 10, God promised Jehu that because you have done this, Your descendants will reign in Israel to the fourth generation. That was back in 2 Kings 10. As we come to 2 Kings 13, his first son now becomes king. The first generation comes onto the throne. And what what this confirms, if nothing else, is that God is true to his word and faithful to his promises. If God says it, promises it, it's going to happen. Verse 2. He, as Jehoahaz, did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he dur- did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer, a savior for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before, but they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also, the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. Nothing had been left of the army of Jehoahaz except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like dust at threshing time. Verse 8. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoahaz, all he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel, Jehoahaz rested with his ancestors, he was buried in Samaria, and Jehoash, his son, succeeded him as king. So in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all he did in his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel, Jehoash rested with his ancestors and Jeroboam succeeded him in the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, verse 14. Now, Elisha had been suffering from an illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and he wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. And when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. And Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck the ground three times and stopped. The man of God was angry. You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. Now you're only going to defeat it three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life. And he stood up on his feet. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz, Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. Take a seat. Well done. (laughs) Isn't it really interesting, or I I think it's really interesting, that even though someone ignores God and has no time for God for the most part, even though someone does what is morally wrong, Or incredibly immoral. And no matter whether somebody pursues a life of full-on sin. And sinning. Isn't it interesting that whenever they turn to God in a crisis. God not only listens to them. But he answers them. What's that about? Well it's this it's grace. It's all grace. I mean, Jehoahaz reigned for 17 years, and his entire reign was characterized, it says, by evil. 17 years of pure evil as a king. And it says he aroused God's anger, which is fair enough and totally understandable. But whenever he sought the Lord's favor, the Lord heard him and responded positively. He provided a deliverer, or if you've got the ESV or the RSV, he provided a savior who then rescued Israel. Now, the identity of that savior is a mystery. Don't get sidetracked. People go down all kinds of different often all kinds of different tangents trying to work out. Well, who was the deliverer, the savior that God provided at this time? That's not the point. The fact is, God provided a deliverer to a man and to a group of people who didn't deserve it. It's not the first time God did that. And it certainly won't be the last time God did that. As Christmas has reminded us yet again, his name will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Not because any of them, not because any single person here sitting this morning warranted to be saved. Simply because of grace. Simply because God so loved you that he sent the greatest gift ever given. Because of the greatest love ever shown. It's all grace. God saves. It's his heart. And here in 2 Kings 13, in what for some people might be a relatively obscure text, in 2 Kings 13, it's as if a gospel light shines. A selfish, self-centered king who has no time for God is saved by the amazing grace of God. Don't miss this. Don't miss grace. And as you come to this story, you kind of hope that that will be recognized by this king. That even though he has spent his entire reign doing evil, having no time whatsoever for God, that when he turned to God and he encountered God's grace, you'd hope that he acknowledged that, he appreciated that. But it doesn't seem to be the case because look at verse 6. The moment the danger has passed, the moment everybody gets comfortable again, the moment everybody gets back into their own homes, they return to Sin City. They go back to living for themselves. They go back to following their own gods. Grace gets rejected. Compassion is exchanged for ingratitude. It seems that Jehovah has wanted relief rather than relationship. Please help me God, but let's just leave it at that. Give me a break, but then give me space. And I suppose that's a pattern that still occurs today. Help me, God. Bail me out. Dispense some grace. But I prefer not to take it any further in terms of relationship. I need you to be at my beck and call. I need you there whenever there is a crisis. I need you there whenever I need help. But as for the rest of the time, let me just get on with my life. But you know what the incredible thing is? God in his grace is always there. He's not far from any one of us. Jehoahaz and company were on the receiving end of the unmerited grace of God. But once the threat was over, they opted for a return to their own way. Well, eventually this king dies. And his son, Jehoash, becomes king, not for 17 years, but this time for 16 years. And then, sadly, we read that all too familiar introductory and damning refrain. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn away from any of the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which had caused Israel to commit. He continued in. You know, it's tedious, this story. I know it is. It's tedious how often you just keep coming across this phrase. Sin is tedious. But in verse 14, we find a rather fascinating incident and episode in this king's life. So we discover Elisha is terminally ill. Now, why? What was the nature of his illness? We we have no clue. But he is terminally ill. But Jehoash goes to visit him, which is strange. And he doesn't just go to visit him. He weeps over him. Now kings, especially those who are hell-bent on doing evil, they didn't tend to go to see prophets at all. It generally happened the other way around. Prophets went to see kings. So why is this prophet or is this king going to visit Elisha? That's a good question. But as you read on, you discover that this king is about to be under attack. And Elisha, sick and all that he is, he's got a word for him. But it comes in the form of a striking visual aid. And so once again, what we're into here is the realms of a wicked king turning to a man of God when he needs help, when he's afraid of what his future holds. And once again, does he get the door slammed on his face? No, he gets assistance. He gets help. He receives grace. Doesn't deserve it. For 16 years, he reigns. An evil but when he f- is afraid for his future because there's an enemy about to attack him he turns to the man of God and he finds help like his dad, he didn't deserve it but Elisha's input and kind of striking visually it is intriguing so he, he gets the king to fire an arrow out a window And he describes this arrow as the Lord's arrow of victory, which really means you are going to defeat your enemy. And so Jehoash is kind of thinking, well, so far, so good. And then Elisha says to the king, I want you to take more arrows, or it implies in the way the language is structured, take all the arrows that are in your quiver and fire them into the ground or strike the ground with them. So the king starts to do that. But he stops after three. Who knows why? But Elisha is raging. And he says to him, you should have done that five or six times. Because you see, if you'd done that five or six times, that would have ensured the complete destruction of your enemy. But now you're only going to defeat Aram three times. So the question is, why did Joash stop after three? Discuss. Why? Well, nobody's got a clue. So let me give you three possibilities. Was it because he couldn't be bothered doing anymore? Thought he had done enough. He had had enough. I mean, after all, he was the king. That's one possibility. Second possibility, was it because partial obedience to the word of God is always easier than total obedience? I hear what you said, Alicia, about what I should do, but I'm only going to go so far with this. Is partial obedience to a word from God or a word from a man of God far easier than total obedience could be? Was it because this king wanted to retain a certain degree of independence? I'll decide when to stop. And nobody else. Well, to say nobody knows. But the main issue for me here is this: is an example of another wicked person turning to God in a crisis and finding undeserved favour. He will experience victory. He will experience rescue three times. Yes, it could have been more, but he is still going to be rescued and have victory three times over the king of Aram. Far more than he deserved. Because you see, the grace of God just keeps giving. It keeps appearing. It keeps reaching out to us and we must never, ever take it for granted. And so the grace of God is reaching out to you and me this morning. In a sense, irrespective of where we're at or what we've done or how we feel or what we think the grace of God is reaching out. And then it says, Elisha dies. I mean, five brief words. Elisha died and was buried. It's the end of an era Ever since he picked up the mantle from Elijah 60 years previously, Elisha has been the man of God. Elisha has been the voice of God, but now the voice falls silent. Although his influence and his impact continues beyond the grave. And this is where it all starts to get odd. Because Elisha's impact and influence continues through the grave. Or at least it does so temporarily. Because in the space of less than two verses, we read about this bizarre incident. So some Israelites are conducting a funeral. And as they conduct this funeral, and they're on the funeral procession, they come across a band of Moabite raiders. And it turns out, according to the narrator of this text, that these Moabite raiders ventured into this part of the country every spring. And so the funeral is cut short. And so rather than take their friend's body to his designated burial place and grave, they throw his body into Elisha's tomb, which must have been close at hand and it must have been open or at least easily accessible. Now, the narrator doesn't give us a whole pile of detail. As I said, this is all in the space of two verses. But here's what he says happens next. And it's only in a sentence, and he offers no explanation. He just says, When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood on his feet. So here you have the third and final resurrection in the Old Testament. And it's astonishing. And again, the question is, what's it all about? Well, there could be a number of possibilities. First of all, it's, it's clear that Alicia is not going to go quietly, as most people do. But then again, neither did his predecessor, his mentor, or his role model. How how did Elijah die? Well, he didn't. Elijah, like Enoch, got taken to heaven without dying. And and so maybe, and and this is where you're on the the ground of conjecture, I know, but but maybe both Elisha and Elijah's end-of-life experiences indicate that, listen, death does not have dominion and absolute control over the people of God. And this is a really important thing to consider. Maybe death does not have dominion and total control and authority over the people of God. There's more than a hint in both these cases that death may not always have the final or last say. Could it be that this one-off incident tucked away in 2 Kings 13 with no real comment said about it, somehow it points forward toward a future day whenever death itself will be defeated once and for all? One commentator puts it like this. He says... it is a tiny, that is this incident, is a tiny vignette of a day when death itself will be destroyed. It's a glimpse here in Second Kings 13 of a city in which there will be no more death or mourning. This victory over death in 2 Kings 13 was a foretaste of a yet greater victory over the grave. You know, so far in this chapter, we've already made reference to a Savior, to a Deliverer, who was going to come and rescue people from an enemy. And we kind of drew the parallels between that and Jesus. And so we should. And we've made the obvious connection that this chapter is also packed full of hints. That actually God is doing something. God is up to something. God is planning something greater. And here, as a dead body touches the bones of another dead body, there is life. Is there hints? Hints? Of resurrection here, rumors of redemption, or maybe at a slightly simpler level, what happens here kind of sums up Elisha's 60 years of ministry a ministry of bringing life out of death. That, as an instrument of God's life giving word, this dramatic episode captures in a striking moment what this man's entire ministry was all about. It was all about bringing life out of death via the word of God. I suppose the good news of the Bible is kind of summed up in that, isn't it? God so loved the world that he gave Jesus that if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. That is the message of God's word. That is the hope of God's word. That is the hope of the gospel. Death does not have the final say. Elisha is dead. But somehow he still speaks. The question is, are we listening? And so the Bible, as we know, it's packed full of information regarding life and death. Full of information regarding life after death. And so this resurrection in 2 Kings 13, and it's not the only one. And as I said earlier, it's not the greatest one because as we all know, and I know some of you are thinking that, as we all know, this unknown, unnamed, incredibly lucky individual of 2 Kings 13, he will eventually die again, as did Lazarus, as did the son of the Shumanite. But each of those resurrections points towards the eventual resurrection of Jesus who defeated death once and for all, who defeated our greatest enemy and then stood and declared in no uncertain terms, I am the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. If you believe in Jesus... You will die. One out of one people said one out of one people die. But if you believe in Jesus, you will live forever. Death will not have the final say. Death is not the end. That is our hope. But do we believe that? Do we have confidence in that? Do we live in the light of that? Don't let the weirdness of the life-giving bones of a dead prophet rob you of the reminder that death is under God's control. And if you believe in God, you'll live forever. You have an amazing future ahead of you, Christian. Hope springs eternal. Embrace that reality this morning. Let's bring this to a close. Because verse 22 reveals that during Jehoash's reign, the king of Aram oppresses the Israelites. But, but look at this next verse. It's on the screen. But the Lord was gracious to them. There's that grace of God again. The Lord was gracious to them and he had compassion and he showed concern for them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. You see, Israel should have been banished from the land long ago. Israel should have been banished, put out of God's presence years before this, given their constant rebellion and apostasy, their constant faithlessness. But because of God's covenant faithfulness, because God is gracious and his compassion, and he is compassionate, he was never going to abandon people. He was never going to break his side of the covenant, his side of the deal, his side of the agreement. The people broke it all the time. God was never going to break it. Because God's gracious and God is compassionate. And again, as we just come and bring us down in, please allow those truths to inspire your praise and your commitment. And in the last two verses, the king of Aram dies, and then his son Ben Hadad takes over. But then it says Jehoash defeats him how many times? Three times. It could have been more, yes. It should have been more, absolutely. But what this reminds us is, God is true to his word. He said three times, that's exactly how many times he wins. And so, in all that we have said this morning about a God who listens to us when we cry out to him, it's true. All we have said this morning about a God of amazing grace is true. All we have said this morning about a God who provides a Savior who will save His people from their sin is true. All we have said this morning about a God who brings life out of death, who promises that those who believe in Him will live forever is true. All we have said about a God who is gracious and compassionate is true. Why? Because 2 Kings 13 teaches it. God's Word reveals it. And so as we, and I'm going to ask the guys to come back up the, the, the as we sing our last song, which is Faithful One. And I know we, Nigel, drew attention to that line in the song we sang earlier, Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but you are faithful through it all. God is true to his word and faithful to his promises. So God listens to you when you cry out to him. God hears. God saves his people from their sin. And death will not have the final say in your life. It's not the end. You will live forever. And so for those of you who have been through the valley of the shadow of death. Like sitting at that funeral on Friday morning of Judith's dad, Billy Foster. A man of God. A man who believed in God and committed his life to God and followed God. That was a service of thanksgiving. It was a celebration. Because yes, there's grief and there's mourning at the passing. But because he's in Christ, he is alive. And will live forever. And that is our hope. Do we believe it? Do we have confidence in it? Let's live in the light of it.